you have your Bibles, turn to Judges chapter 2 tonight. You can find that uh, in your Bible, uh, found on page 201, 202. Once you do find that, if you'll please rise for the reverent reading and hearing of God's holy word given to us from Judges chapter 2. We'll read the entirety of the chapter. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of the inheritance in Timonath Eris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gosh. And all that generation who were gathered to their father. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and they gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into hands of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. When they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. The Lord had warned, as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from all the ways in which their fathers had walked, but obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who had afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers, have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the inhabitants that Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them, whether they'll take care to walk in the ways of the Lord, as their father did, or not. For the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hands of Joshua. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Several years ago, my family and I went to Alcatraz, the notorious prison in the San Francisco Bay, which, while 
within its time, was used as a prison for notorious criminals. Now it's a, a mere monument and historical destination spot. And so you can pay a fee and get on a ferry and ride over and take a tour of the prison and the prison grounds. And while I was doing this and walking around, I noticed that several people had headphones on. And I thought, this is quite odd. Why are people listening to music or other things while here on Alcatraz? But soon I realized, wait a second, everyone has the same set of headphones. And then I soon realized that these were indeed a part of the tour. It was an audio tour. And these headphones were included in the tour fee. And they could have been picked up at the entrance, which I had obviously missed. And so I got my pair of headphones. And I tell you what, it made quite a difference. Literally, the place came alive through the audio tour that guided me through the prison. In many ways, I would have missed so much if I did not have those headphones and if I did not have that audio tour. It pointed out parts of the prison. It it gave testimonies of, of those that had been there, both from prison guards as well as prisoners. I say all this because as we turn to chapter 2, chapter 2 acts in a similar way. It's a bit of an overview of the entirety of the book of Joshua. Before getting into the individual stories of the individual judges, the author gives us the overall summary of the book so that when you read the individual passages, you do not miss the context. You do not miss what is taking place. In other words, you do not miss the forest for the trees. As one commentator said, chapter 2 is like the visitor center at a battlefield. Understanding the whole of the war has you to make better sense of the individual battles that were fought. So too in this chapter before us. And so tonight, as I mentioned, it gives us this overview. So as we enter into these various stories, we do not miss the themes and what is taking place and what God is doing during the time of the judges. And so we'll see in two points tonight, the pattern of sin, and then second, the father that never forgets. First, the pattern of sin. You see in Verse 1, an angel of the Lord comes and gives this message to Israel that I have brought you out of Egypt, and I have made a covenant with you, and I commanded that you would make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. But he says that you broke that covenant. You indeed did not break down their altars, nor did you drive them out. In other words, this angel of the Lord comes and says, I have entered into a relationship with you. I have rescued you. I have redeemed you. You are mine. And as such, you are to be exclusive. You are to be devoted to me and me only. And this is why the marriage covenant between a man and a woman parallels God's covenant with mankind. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 5, doesn't he? Where he tangles together 
Sometimes he's talking about husbands and wives, and other times he's talking about Christ and the church because marriage is an earthly example of the heavenly relationship that we have with God. And yet, what is this angel saying? He's saying, You have failed, you have disobeyed, you have been disobedient. Indeed, you have not been faithful. You see that at the end of verse 2. You have not obeyed my voice. And then ask this question, what is this that you have done? And we already saw some of this in chapter 1, did we not? If you turn back there, we see that as it gives this listing of these tribes of Israel. We see this reoccurring theme that they did not drive them out. Rather, they came up with these very novel ideas. You see in verse 24 of chapter 1 that uh, the tribe of Joseph sees a man that is coming out of a city, and they basically enter into agreement with him, saying, if, if you help us get into this city, we will help you. It goes on to say in verse 28 that when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. They came up with an idea. Well, you know what? These are able hands and strong backs, and we can use them for our own profits. We can indeed make our nation rich as a result of using this forced labor of the Canaanites. So we won't kill them. We know what the Lord has said, but you know what? We kind of know a little bit better what we should do. We see in verse 33 that Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, so they lived among the Canaanites. You see that. They thought, you know what? These people are really not that bad. They are quite nice. But you notice the inhabitants of Beth Anath. Beth means house in Hebrew. And Anath is the name of a Canaanite god. Same thing with Beth Shemesh. We see that in the next verse. So they kept these cities, no doubt, keeping their temples to these foreign gods also there, worshiping perhaps alongside these Canaanites and these foreigners, thinking, well, they can do their thing when we can do ours. And so you see the very first aspect, the first step in the pattern of sin is unfaithfulness or faithlessness, not following through with what the Lord has commanded, not giving thorough and whole obedience, doing some of what the Lord has said, but not the whole thing, not doing what we tell our children to obey right away, all the way. That was not the case with Israel. And in many ways, What this chapter tells us in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and in fact throughout most of the book is that Israel was a disobedient son. That even though God was a faithful father, they were disobedient children. And so notice what the angel of the Lord says in verse 3. So now I say I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. In fact, we see this at the beginning of the chapter, and then at the end of the chapter, it's in many ways bookend. If you see in verse 21, I will no longer drive out before them any nation that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, 
whether they will take care to walk in the ways of the Lord as their fathers did or not. And so what we see is that the Lord allows them to remain. And in fact says that they are going to become a thorn in your side. And that their gods will be a snare to you. He is going to allow them to remain so as to test the Israelites. To see if they will truly walk in the way of the Lord. And if they don't, they are going to experience the misery of sin. Parents, we do this sometimes with our children, do we not? We tell our children, I have warned you and I have warned you. And I've done so to prevent harm and to prevent injury and to prevent discomfort. But you're not listening. And as a result of not listening and not heeding, unfortunately, you're going to have to learn the hard way. This is what I call the the finger in the outlet test, right? Every child with a toddler knows what I'm speaking of, that these outlets are right at this level of little children that are crawling around or walking around, and they are fascinated by it. Seemingly, all boys are fascinated with outlets. Girls, not so much. It may show that girls are quite more intelligent than boys, but uh, that's another test for another time or another story for another time. But what do we do as parents? We say to our children, don't do that. Don't do that. But almost always at some point, every kid does it, right? And it is an instant life lesson. Learn the hard way. And typically, it only happens once. You only have to experience that once to know I'm not going to do that again. Well, the Lord is doing the same, is he not? You're saying, I'm giving these warnings, I'm giving these precepts, I do it for your own good, to prevent harm, but sometimes that harm needs to take place. It needs to happen. You need to go through the school of hard knocks, as they say. And it usually comes, if we're honest with ourselves, out of a place of pride. I know better. My way is better. It's like the Israelites said, well, we know what the Lord said, but uh, we can do it differently. We can come up with these novel ideas. And the Lord says, no, no, your way is not better, but go ahead. I'm going to, to hand you over, in a sense, to your sin, over to your wickedness, so that you would experience your own misery. And we see that, do we not? In verse 14, it says, and he sold them into the hands of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. When they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. The Lord in many ways removes his presence, removes his protection and says, you're just gonna have to learn the hard way because of your sin and because of your unrepentance. Now there is times this chapter talks about that they did seemingly repent, at least outwardly. We see this at verse 4, where it says that after the angel of the Lord spoke these words, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Notice the, the people wept. 
They, they shed a lot of tears, so much so it's called bokim, which means weeping or weepers. And they sacrifice to the Lord. And yet, notice what it does not say. It does not say that they repented of their ways. They did not change their ways. In other words, there was a lot of emotions. There was even so-called worship. But then they left and carried on in what they were doing before. In other words, there was no obedience. Samuel, who is the author of this book, would later say those very famous words to King Saul. You remember what he said to Saul? Has the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. We need to remember that, do we not, as we come to church and we worship our great God and we are to do that. But we are to be reminded that the Lord doesn't just want our acts of worship. He does not just want our emotions. He wants all of us. That's what Romans 12 one talks about that we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, offer our whole self as living sacrifices to God, holy and pleasing. For he says, Paul says, this is your spiritual act of worship. God desires emotions. He does desire worship, but cannot be at the expense of obedience. God desires obedience and not sacrifice. I remember a pastor once saying, a pastor in a little more charismatic church than our own, saying, God does not care how high you jump during worship if you ain't walking straight when you land. And that is very much true. These people were on their knees, but when they got up from their knees, they did not walk in the ways of the Lord. There was no obedience. There was faithlessness. But then we see the second step in this pattern of sin. It goes from faithlessness to forgetfulness. We read in verses 6 through 10 of this wonderful testimony of Joshua. And we talked about Joshua last Sunday. We talked about his leadership and how important good leadership and godly leadership really is, of how the people during Joshua's day followed Joshua's example along that with the elders. And in many ways, there was no greater time in Israel's history than in the days of Joshua. In many ways, I would say it was even greater than the days of David and the days of Solomon. Yes, they they had more dominance over the nations during the days of David and Solomon, but I would say their godliness was greater during the days of Joshua. But as we said then, all men die, even the best of leaders, and the sad reality is that there was no godly leaders to take the place of Joshua. There was no one to keep the legacy going, and then we read something even more troubling than that. It says that all of that generation, that is the generation of Joshua, gathered to their fathers, they died. And then it says, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. 
We see that the generation of Joshua, they were faithful in many ways, but perhaps one of the greatest ways that they failed was to not pass that faith along to the next generation. And I need not tell you why that is so important. Not only then, but today. That is why we need to catechize our children to make sure that they understand and that they see and that they do not forget, that they cannot forget what the Lord has done, the work that he has done, not only in the lives of their parents, but hopefully in their lives as well. That is why Deuteronomy chapter 6, that very famous passage in the Old Testament, that hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The Lord then says, you shall teach these things diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit at your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as signs in your hands and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. In other words, in everything and everywhere, all areas of life, it is the Lord who is to be not only on our hearts and our minds, but upon our lips so that our children would know and understand that that faith be passed along, that one generation would tell it to the next generation, who would tell it to the next generation. But what we see here is that there was a generation who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for them. Like I said, it could be because Joshua's generation failed in this way, or perhaps... It could be that this generation had what I call intentional amnesia. They did not remember because they did not want to remember. Why? Because they wanted to do their own thing. They wanted to go their own way. Of course, they knew of the Lord, but they did not know the Lord. They had no personal relationship with him. They did not remember the works of the Lord, what the Lord had done. It's very interesting. If you look in Jeremiah chapter 2, Jeremiah diagnoses the problem that I think was going on in the days of the judges and even thereafter. It says in Judges chapter 2 and verse 4 through 8, it says, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? And went after worthlessness and became worthless themselves? It is because they did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of droughts and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through? There no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and became made my heritage an abomination. And the priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. You hear what Jeremiah is saying. No one is saying, where is the Lord? What has the Lord done? What is the Lord doing right now? He is saying they have forgotten the ways of the Lord. They are not looking for the ways of the Lord. Instead, they are going after their own. Everything from the greatest leader all the way down. 
this forgetfulness. And so we see that pattern, do we not? It goes from faithlessness to forgetfulness, and that leads to the third step in the pattern of sin, fornication. And we see this in this chapter, do we not? In verse 11, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. You see it again in end of verse 17, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They went into idol worship. In this case, Baal and Asherah. You're probably familiar with what this type of worship would consist of. These gods were the gods of fertility. And so if you wanted increase of crops and livestock and wealth and children, you needed to offer up something to these gods. These gods needed to be persuaded. They needed to be conjoled. And so what these individuals, these humans would do, these Canaanites would do, and then Israel along with them would enter into sexual fornication, temple prostitution, that that was the act of worship. The more that you offered, the more the gods would be persuaded to bless you to bless your land with rain and sunshine and to give you many children and increase. In other words, to be healthy, wealthy, and respectful, you had to give of your offerings to these Canaanite gods. Do we not see that our society and our culture has not advanced much beyond that? We may not have gods per se, meaning of wood and stone, but the cultural gods are very much the same, aren't they? Of pleasure, prestige, power, and you need to offer up to these gods if you want to be something, if you want to be someone, and it is so easy to get caught up in that rat wheel. We can read of the Israelites and think, how could they do this? How could they leave the God that they love, the God that has made covenant with them, and go after these foreign gods? And yet, when we look at the culture around us, we see how easy it is, isn't it? When we go in similar ways, or we make sacrifice to what the culture tells us to do, in fact, it's quite difficult to go against what culture wants you to do. At times, it may even make you seem odd and be an outsider. What is it? Why would you remain a virgin until you are married? That is weird, our culture would say. What? You do not get drunk? You do not use drugs? Why not? You don't go all in to get to the top, even if that means bending the rules a little? If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying, they say. You need to look out for number one. And the list goes on and on. Having character, godly character in a godless society is difficult. And I say godless because that is what it is. It's abandoning the true God, but it's going after other gods. Just like 
in the days of the judges and the Israelites going after the gods of the Canaanites. And it is so much easier to go with culture than to go against it. And oftentimes, sadly, there's little difference between modern society and the quote-unquote church. This is what was happening here. They were not driving out this false worship. They were allowing it to remain, keeping it near, thinking that nothing will happen. Well, what does happen is that you begin to forget that you are called out. And indeed, we are called out ones. We are to be holy. We are to be separate. And we're not to lose our distinctives. And when we do lose our distinctives, what happens? Well, we begin to think and act like the world around us. And so do you see this pattern of sin? I hope you do. And do you see that so that when you see it in your own lives, you will be made well aware of what is taking place? Because if we are honest with ourselves, we cannot condemn the Israelites because we do similar things. We compromise, do we not? We do not follow through. We do not obey all the way, right away. We forget. We go after our own way. We go after our own sin. We go after our own pleasure and our own desires. And you notice how the sins of omission, not doing what we are supposed to do, leads to the sins of commission, doing that which we should not do. Classic example of that is David with Bathsheba, right? says, when the kings were to go out to war, David remained home at his palace. It is the sin of omission. And what happens? He notices Bathsheba and has her come to him, the sin of commission. And so at any point, the warning that this scripture gives to us is that at any point that we see any lack of obedience if we see any faithlessness, when we begin to see forgetfulness or even fornication of sin in our lives, we need to repent of that. As I said, this book is so wonderful for us because Judges has us to do a lot of heart examination and heart repentance, not just once in a while, but all of the time. Because Judges is a tale of unrepentant sin, of hardening of hearts to greater and greater sin, or I should say worse and worse sin. As our youth heard at summer camp from their speaker, sin is like a warm bed, easy to get into, but hard to get out of. And that is true, isn't it? That sin would lure us in and want us to stay there. And speaking of our children and our grandchildren, because this scripture would say that we need to pass along the faith. They're to be catechized, because if they are not catechized, they will be catechized by the world, right? By social media and by friends and peers and cultures, or culture in general. And with faithlessness comes forgetfulness comes fornication, and the church loses its distinctiveness. The church and the world become one and the same. And that is what we should pray against and 
work towards for our own church and in our own families and even for our generations to come. I heard recently of my former seminary president who is praying not only for his children and not only just for his grandchildren, he has those, but he has begun praying for his great-grandchildren, those that are unborn, and his great-great-grandchildren, and all of those that would come from his family tree until the time that Jesus would come back. And this is his prayer, that they would all know Christ, that there wouldn't be one that's lost. That is thinking covenantally. And that is thinking and praying boldly that indeed we would have that aspect to our family, that there would be such a legacy of faith for generations to come. Jesus says that you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, and that we are to be not of the world for Christ says, I am not of the world. And so we are to be in the world, engaging the world. We are not to isolate ourselves or just separate ourselves or be in a holy bubble, but we are to be salt and light to a dying generation. We're not to be of the world. And we ought not try to ultimately please or be accepted by them. Well, we see second then, After this pattern of sin, we see this father who never forgets. What you would think you would see or read throughout this chapter is that God would forsake his people because of their sin. Literally because, as it says in verse 17, they were whoring after other gods. That is a shocking word, isn't it? It's an offensive word in many ways, but that is exactly what sin is. It is just as if We would cheat on our spouse, and we would break our marriage covenant with another. So too, to run after the gods of this world is to break the covenant that God has made with us. And yet what is amazing throughout this chapter, and indeed throughout this book, is that we see God's love and his mercy and his compassion and his faithfulness remain And you notice that, or perhaps you notice that in the beginning of the chapter where we read of this angel of the Lord, but there is something very interesting of this angel of the Lord. Notice it does not say the angel of the Lord says, thus says God, which is oftentimes what angels would say if they were just bringing a message or what the prophets would say if they were speaking on behalf of God. But notice that this angel of the Lord speaks in the first person. He says, I brought you up out of Egypt, and I made a covenant with you, and I will never break that covenant with you. And then he even goes on to say, but you have not obeyed my voice. What are we to make of this? Well, what I think we are seeing here is the pre-incarnate Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the one that would come a thousand years later in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. What is it that Christ is saying in this passage to the Israelites? I'm the one that brought you up. Out of bondage, out of slavery. I'm the one that has made covenant with you. And yet you are breaking my 
covenant and you're entering back into bondage. But the love of God, the love of Christ is too great to allow them to remain there. And so what does Christ do? He does that which any loving parent would do. Sometimes it doesn't seem loving, but it definitely comes out of love, and that is he disciplines. We read of this in Hebrews chapter 12. We heard about it this morning, in fact, in our our Sunday school. In verse 5, where it says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as a son If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You notice that. If we are sons and daughters, we are to be disciplined. Discipline is painful, the author of Hebrews will say, but it bears much fruit, good fruit. And therefore, it's not just mere punishment. It is correction that if we are to go off astray, the Lord would not allow us to remain going off astray. But he, being the good shepherd, would find us and bring us back to the flock and do so through discipline and remind us that out there is a place where we are to experience the miseries of our sin, but within the flock, within his protection, within his presence, that is the good life. That is the joyous life. That is the life that is indeed Christ calls the abundant life. But what we see throughout Joshua is the Lord hands over his people to the surrounding nations so that they would see the misery of their sin. In other words, they would experience temporary pain so that they would not experience eternal agony in hell. Parents, again, it's many parenting lessons from this chapter, isn't there? Parents, this is why we discipline our children, do we not? And we shouldn't say, well, I could never discipline little Johnny or little Susie. If that is our attitude, then they will be lost forever. Children, this is why your parents do discipline you. Not because they hate you or do not like you, but actually because they love you. And they do not want to see you go astray Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way that they should go so that when they are old, they do not depart from it. We need to be directed in a different direction because the natural course of our hearts and our minds is not towards righteousness and not towards truth. We come out of the womb wayward, as they say, and we need to be redirected. And that is not just true of children, is it, parents? We need to be redirected. We need to be disciplined. That is why, again, as I mentioned this morning in Sunday school, as we were going through the Westminster Confession and talking about church discipline and censures, it's a part of God's love to be a member of the church and to experience such discipline that if you would go astray, that the church would admonish you. They wouldn't just say, well, that's okay. You just continue to go that way. No, admonish you to say, come back, understand, repent, receive the correction of our Lord. For individuals to not partake of the Lord's Supper, again, is 
not something that is mean and cruel. That is something that comes out of love. Even excommunication, as Pastor Myers told us, is a demonstration of uh, a, a temporary sign of what your eternal state may be. To be put out of the people of God, yes, temporarily, the church of God may be uncomfortable. It may be even embarrassing. But that is far better than to be eternally out of company with the people of God and the God of our covenants. The Lord uses discipline. And we need to remember that one of the chief disciplines is the teaching and preaching from God's word, week by week. Every time we sit under it, we apply it to our hearts. That is a part of our self-discipline, and that's why we come morning and evening. Many ask why I come in the evening. It's because we need it. Perhaps we're the most wayward of children, and we need more discipline. But God is so gracious to do it for us, and through it we see his love, his jealous love If God did not do it, we would wonder about that relationship. We would wonder if he truly loves us. There must be that jealous love. As Dale Ralph Davis said, what if a wife was having an affair with another man? And what if the husband's reaction was, well, you win some and you lose some. That's just how the cookie crumbles. No, he says, there would be no such nonchalance. If lively love was there, he would be upset, he would be jealous, he would be angry. Jealousy is love burst into its proper flame. That is what we see in the book of Judges. And that is why Samuel, I think, gives us this chapter to say that's why the Lord raised up these judges. In fact, we read that in verse 16. The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those that plundered them. And again in verse 18, whenever the Lord raises up judges for them, the Lord was with the judges and he saved them the hand of their enemies in all the days of the judges. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groanings because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Notice God doesn't just say, well, you get what you deserve. No, He does allow them to get a little of what they deserve. He does not allow them to go so far astray that they are lost forever. In other words, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not extinguish. Though we forget about God, God never forgets about his own, and he never forsakes us. Why? Because what it says in verse 1, I Think of this, the Lord Jesus Christ saying, I will never break my covenant. How do we know that? Well, my friends, as we move to the table this night, we have a beautiful picture of Christ never breaking his covenant with us. This indeed is a covenantal meal. God has made covenant with us, and he will not forget us He will not forget his covenant, even to the point of death. He would rather give of his son, give of his son's body and blood, rather than break off the relationship that he has with his own. That is what Christ has done. That is what the cross demonstrates to us this morning. 
that we are made part of the covenant through Christ, that he indeed will never leave us, he will never forsake us, he will never stop pursuing us, he will never stop molding and sanctifying us until we are made fully like Christ. As Paul says in Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with us graciously give us all things? My friends, that is why we love him. That is why we come tonight to confess our sins and to repent of our sins. That is why we come not just with tears and worship, but obedience, new obedience, because we want to give of our lives to such a God as this that would never leave us, that would never forsake us. And that is why we praise him despite our sins. He never gives up. He never forgets. He never forsakes. As Isaiah 49, 15 says, can a nursing mother forget her child in her arms and have no compassion? Even if that be so, the Lord says, I will never forget. 